10 and 10, the Ten Commandments. I want to talk about this. Uh, what comes to mind when we think of the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's one of the great questions. When someone says the Ten Commandments, you know, some people, the first impression they have is that was a movie. You know, that was a movie starring Charlton Heston and Moses. And, but for a lot of others, uh, people think of the Ten Commandments, they kind of think of them, since, at least since the coming of Jesus, as something that is more part of the Older Testament, something that's been rendered somewhat obsolete because of Jesus and what he teaches us. Um, that actually probably uh, would, you know, not be accurate because Jesus himself clearly stated that he did not come to destroy the law of which the Ten Commandments are the centerpiece, but actually to fulfill it and to expand upon it. And so um, some of us, though, I realize uh, it's natural that to view these words, uh, these commands with suspicion, particularly in light of our culture today, I suppose that to some people it would be... Um, easy to see them as simply, you know, sort of restrictive, religious jargon, thou shalt not, defining and reflecting the, the, the worst part of a rule-based, maybe, um, do's and don'ts kind of Christianity. Uh, but, but I will tell you, and I know this, I know this to be true, because I think that we know, I know, that some of us have been injured, not everybody, but some of us have come out of backgrounds where there was seemed to be such a disconnection between um, um, love and care and grace and, and rules that it, it, it literally squeezed out the life and joy of following Jesus. And some of us actually maybe got injured a little bit along the way. And just coming back to, the, to church has been a remarkable uh, thing in and of itself, to walk through doors again. And yet God is, is here and he's present and he's real and he's, he wants to speak to us. And, and, uh, but I want to say this, if we were to dis disregard these, these Ten Commands, we would, we would rob ourselves of this amazing blessing. It's, it would do itself a tremendous disservice because far from being restrictive rules, they're actually life-giving principles that when actually lived out, produce a pathway of blessing. They were given not to hurt God's people, but to help them. They were given not to destroy or take away their joy, but actually to enhance the quality of the way in which they lived and blessed others. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what Jesus had to say, how he summarized it. And uh, hopefully we will leave a little bit more open and understanding as to what the Lord wants us to hear. And so if we can, with that in mind, I was thinking about um, the commands themselves. And it wasn't too long ago that I, I read a, uh, uh, just it was a, a quote from a, one of the, great Scottish preachers named Alexander White. And uh, I was connecting what he said to his congregation about reading the Bible to, to why we should also reconnect with these, these 10 words, these 10 commands. And he said this, he was trying to get his people to think about how they approached things, specifically reading the scriptures. And he made this statement. He said, you can read the Bible like a lawyer reads a will, or you can read it like an heir reads a will. And if you think about it, that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, how does a lawyer read a will? It's objective, it's disconnected, here's the facts, here's what's going on, it's parsing, it's, it's sort of dry and uninvolved. But an heir reads a will so differently. Why? Because there's something, I'm listening, but in a whole different way. I'm listening because there's something in it for me. I'm, what's next? So what do, they, what do they say? I mean, I mean, there's something about it. And he's saying, that's the same thing. Do we read these words? Do we read the scriptures? Do we approach God like a lawyer? You know, just from a distance, just the facts. D 
disconnected or do we engage it in a devotional way, in a way that says, there's something in this for me. This has meaning for me. This is real. It can penetrate. When we approach things, how we approach things matters. It matters, by the way, in everything we do. I mean, when we approach a certain project or a commitment, if we do it passively, half-heartedly, if we do it in a way that is emotionally disconnected, it's really hard to get the real blessing that's intended in that entire movement. But when we come into something, that's why the Bible says, whatever you're going to do, do it with all your might. Pour your heart into it. Pour your soul into it. Certainly, how we approach things matters. How we approach God matters. Jesus talked about it. He says, listen, the one who have ear, I would that you would have ears to hear what the Lord is saying. You know, it's possible to listen and it's possible to hear. And there's something different about it. How do we read this? How do we look at it? Like a lawyer, clinical, objective, or like someone who's an heir, who's going to get something out of it, who has a, a direct investment in it. Because when we read the scripture that way, it changes everything. Lord, how does this apply to me? Lord, let your word be alive to me. You see, it's different. It's different. And, and, and we're going to see how the Lord is going to just sort of speak to his people about this. Go with me, if you can, to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse number 1. And I'm going to read through this fairly rapidly. And again, this is the Exodus account, because to appreciate the Ten Commandments, we've got to kind of understand the context in which they were given. And in Exodus 19, we're told what that context was. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and they had camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. That mountain was Mount Sinai. They had just been liberated out of Egypt, out of slavery. It was an amazing thing that God did. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell this to the children of Israel. And there's a, look at these beautiful verses, very poetic, filled with metaphor, the tenderness of God shooting forth. Um, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. I mean, the very image of an eagle of being born on eagles' wings. I took you out. I lifted you out. Some of us understand that. We have felt that. We have felt the lift of God in our lives, the grace of God. He says, I lifted you out of your place of bondage, and I have brought you now even to me. I've, I've designed this to be relational. You see that? Even there. I've brought you to myself. There's something about that. I want you out of all this. I've, I've chosen you to be, and look what he says in verse 5. Uh, Therefore, if you would obey my voice, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure above all people, um, a costly possession of significant value, a special work of art, purchased and loved, desired and chosen. He says this, because all the earth is mine, no tribal deity, no. I am the Lord of all. I am the owner of the earth. All is mine, and I have chosen you out of it. I mean, this is beautiful, beautiful statement. And he says this, I have called you to be, verse 6, to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, that is, a people who have access to God and who can be a bridge on God's behalf to others. That's what he says your purpose is for, to be a holy nation, one made holy by adoption. You are mine. And this is beautiful tenderness here. And, and that is the, the, the beginning of a movement that results in the Lord giving the Ten Commands and the law, specifically these commandments. And it, we're told in Exodus 19 that Moses... Um, was told by God that it says, and the Lord came down. I think it was the God of the universes can also can be everywhere and in, in a specific place in, in a different way. That alone is, is uh, 
mind expanding. And here is God who says he came to a place to reveal himself. And he called up, and I don't know if you can see it, but many have seen in this a picture also of the Christian life. Because God comes down, and we, and Moses, what? Climbs up. And there is a connection there between the Lord coming first, and he certainly in the giving of his son, he has done this. He initiates relationship with us, but this is no easy play. There is, a, there is something that is required of us if we're genuinely going to get the word of God at work in our lives. There's a climbing of sorts. There's an effort on our part. Do you see it? There's, an, there's, an, there's something that we, it just, it just doesn't happen. There's a, I think of it, I'm making my way up to meet with God so that he can speak to me and us. You see, there's, it's a combination. It's first God's overture, but it's also our response. And it doesn't come to the passive. It wasn't just, just sit there and the word will come. Climb up and meet me. Moses climbs, and you know what happens? He's given this, these amazing words. Now, we put these words in, the, in, the, in a little, well, you know, you guys all, I, I think everybody got one of these. This should have been a little insert in there. A little bookmark put in your Bibles as well for the duration of our series together. What it does is it delineates the 10. And why is this helpful? Because I think by taking a quick glance, one of the things that we realize immediately, and this is something that has been um, talked about for, for generations, is that the Ten Commandments actually divide into two sections and can be thought of frequently in this way. The first four speak in so many ways, if you look at them quickly. They would speak of our, our uh, duties that we owe to God. Five through ten speak of the duties that we, we owe to other human beings, to people. So if we think of it this way, one through four has to do with vertical. It has to do with our, our relationship with God. But five through ten are horizontal. They have to do with relationships and living life with other people. And so we owe things to God and we owe things to others. And herein we'll, we will see is the nexus of the Christian life. It is the center of everything, as Jesus will teach us. It has far less to do with rights and far more to do with responsibilities or our capacity and ability to respond, which is connected to a free will that God gives each one of us, which makes love possible, by the way. Because love that is coerced and forced is not love at all, nor can it ever be. But a love that is chosen, this, that's why the Lord said, I've chosen you, but you must choose me, the God who allows himself to be rejected, and still does. But that is a requirement of real love. Free will is a gift. Because it means that we can choose yes to say no, but we can also choose to say yes. And it makes that yes mean so much. I love you, Lord. See, go, go with me to uh, Mark 10, Mark 12, actually. Because in Mark 12, we see one of the places where Jesus is talking about how he perceives and understands the Ten Commandments, the law. And he is, and this has, there's a couple of different places in the Gospels where this comes up. I've selected Mark 12. I think Mark 12 is a good passage for us to see. Uh, Jesus said this. It says, then one of the scribes came and having heard them. Now, the scribes were the lawyers of Jesus' day. Uh, they were those who, and I mean lawyer, they were schooled in religious law, both oral and written tradition. They were not only learned in the details of Moses' written law, but they were learned in the um, sort of uh, enlargement of it as well, the rules, the regulations, the details, the nuances. They were, that was their life. They were skilled in it. They understood it. They believed in the expansive uh, law. 
the, there was another group. It's, by the way, the other group is the them of verse 28. You see it says that one of the scribes came and having heard them, them has to do with Jesus and the Sadducees. That was a religious political party in Jesus' day, one of the two major political parties. One was the Sadducees. They were the liberal wing of the religious party in Jerusalem. And there were the, the Pharisees, which were the more conservative. The, the liberal wing, the Sadducees, were having a discussion with Jesus over things that pertain to the resurrection. I know this is it's important, though. And as they're having this conversation, they're going back and forth. And religious, the, the Sadducees were not lightweights. They were men of, of tremendous intellectual heft and power, uh, extremely learned, very powerful, and uh, they had their own skills and capacities. And when Jesus dealt with them, the scribe was so impressed because the scribes and the, and the Sadducees were rivals. And, Jesus, and this scribe was listening to this conversation that was going back and forth, and he's watching Jesus. And by the time Jesus is done, I mean, he slices and dices, you know, like a master chef on the food channel. I mean, just, it was like fast. And by the time he's done, the Sadducees don't want to talk to him anymore. And the scribe is going, oh, my. I, I would like to ask you a question. And, he's, and the question that comes is this. And it's the question that helps all of us because he says, when he perceived after what had occurred that, that he had answered them well, he asked him this question, Master, he's teacher, what is the uh, first commandment of all? Now, okay, what he did not mean by that question was, can you tell me commandment number one out of the ten? So he wasn't asking him to recite commandment number one. He wasn't testing him that. He was asking him a common question in his day that all the great teachers of Jesus' day up to that point um, would have addressed. How, do, how are we to interpret these words? What is, what, in other words, what is, the, what is the first? What is the greatest command? Um, how do you boil this law down in its most distilled sense? Um, maybe think of it this way. It, in it, what can you tell me? What is the, it, what is the law in, in its most potent and meaningful form. How, how do you see it? Where do you place the accent? What is the point of emphasis? Give me your take. I want to hear. And Jesus says, I will tell you. And then he tells us this. He summarizes the 10. Look what he does. He says, in this, he says look, here it is. Jesus answered him. He says, well, I'll answer that. The first, the greatest of all the commandments is this. Number one, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what's more, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first. This is the greatest commandment of all, period. Now, he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6. He was quoting what they knew as the Shema, the hearing that starts out the hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel is not hear, O Israel. Check this out. It's hear, O Israel. Hear me. Hear the Lord. Hear God. Hear, hear, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, Jesus says, is the greatest of all. And then he said, but, 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 and then he quotes from Leviticus 19. He says, but the second is like unto this. So he takes the ten and he consolidates them to two. He says, and it's just what we talked about. He says, the first is to love God, but he says the second is like, like unto this. What does, he, what does he say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. People. And then he says, there's no, look, there is no, if you do this, there's nothing else that isn't, <laughs> this is it. This is the second great, this is the commandment of God. 
This is the commandment of God. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe was impressed. And he said to him, you know, in verse 31 there, after Jesus responds there, you know, there was a resonance immediately with, with what Jesus said. Now, I was thinking about this. Stay with me on it for a moment. Jesus had had this come up before. Now, again, Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when that verse was originally given, when that law was given, it was a debate in Jesus' day as to what actually it meant because people had... <laughs> People had defined historically neighbor as meaning the people that were like you, our people, the people of Israel. And so neighbor meant love your neighbor was to love your people. And Jesus, of course, blew that up in one of his great teachings. And he, he, some of us recall the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable of the Good Samaritan in which the hero, if you will, or the one who truly showed compassion, the true neighbor, was the Samaritan, the outcast, the one who was the half-breed, who a Jew would think is unclean. That one, Jesus makes the hero, the one who took his time and effort to help and heal and show compassion because it was a response to an initial question when someone said, well, who, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Let me tell you a story. And then by the time he was done, Jesus said to the man who asked the question, who was the neighbor? And the man said, the Samaritan was obvious. Yes, Jesus blows out the door. It's not just our people. It's the people who are beyond our own group. But he took it even further than that. I mean, that's enough right there. But you know what Jesus did? He said, not only that, because I want you to do something. I want you to understand, God is calling us to not just love the Samaritan, he's calling us to love, not just love the one who's a little bit different. Oh, he's asking us to love our enemy. He says, you love your enemy. Now that, that's hard. Not, not love the people who do you wrong. That's a whole different deal, isn't it? I mean, you want to talk about blowing the, the I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, love your neighbor. Hmm, I can, okay. Love those who are a little bit different than you, the outsider. Ah. Love those who are your enemies. Lord, that, that's hard. That's really hard. Love, how do you do that? I think we, we all wrestle with that. You know, I mean, that's not that easy. How do we respond in a Christ-like way to people who are speaking against us on our job or people who are violating our trust or are hurting us? How do we do this? You know, I was, my son and I were talking about this, my younger son, and he was talking about how some issues that he was having and with an authority figure, we were talking about it. And, and he says, you know, Dad, in class, I was given this article by, um, about Martin Luther King. And it was a, a piece of a writing that he had that was called, um, what was it, uh, The Strength to Love. And he says, I want to give you a copy of it. Just tell me what you think. And, and I was thinking about this message and how Jesus had talked to us about loving our neighbor and what that neighbor was and loving our enemies. And King, who had to deal with this a lot, he had to go back and forth around this. And in, and in this, his writing, he talks about different ways in which we can love our enemies because he was contending for people to try to drop their anger. And I'm just, this is not in your handout, so you just got to hang with me on this. Let me just read it real quick. It says, second, he says this, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor, the enemy neighbor, the enemy neighbor, he says, the thing that hurts never quite expresses all that he is. 
an element of goodness may be found even in our worst enemy. Each of us is something of a schizophrenic personality, and King shifts it to us. And he says this, tragically, we are divided against ourselves. There is a persistent civil war that rages within all of our lives. We all know this. Something within us causes us to lament with Ovid, the Latin poet, I see and approve the better things but follow words. Or to agree with Plato, the human personality is like a charioteer having two headstrong horses, each wanting to go in different directions inside of us. Or to repeat with the Apostle Paul, the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. And then he concludes by saying this, this simply means that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And he was reminding them that we all have our own issues. And there's ugly stuff in us. And that should inform how we approach life. That certainly, look, the, listen, that's why I always talk about, you hear me, you, you hear me it, it, suspect our own righteousness always. And what do I mean by that? Let's be very careful about becoming so self-righteous that we, we are not in touch with our own absolute need for the extraordinary, relentless grace of God. How many times have we let the Lord down through word or deed, either said or unsaid? Perhaps this week we can, in a very tangible, real way, connect to something that we know displeased the Lord and was inconsistent with the very things that we believe. I could think of, I was thinking about it. I thought of a couple of things. I said, Lord, God, how much do I need your grace at work in my life? See, King was trying to get them to wrestle with the fact that there's stuff inside every one of us that needs God's grace. And that should help at least. It may not make it easy for us, but what he's trying to say is, well, the more we are aware of our own need for the grace and forgiveness of God, the harder it is to withhold forgiveness, or at the very least, to just let that anger run rampant through us into resentment and bitterness, and it's a cancer of the soul. It's not the way to live. It's everything antithetical to what Jesus taught us and modeled for us. We're, we're to be relational healers, not dividers, as best as we can. Loving God, loving others, that's the point. The, fair, the, the, the scribe is talking with Jesus. Let's go back real quick there. And he says this. It says that the scribe said to him, wow, teacher, after he hears Jesus' answer in verse 32, he says, well said, teacher, you have you." He gets excited. He goes, you know what? You have spoken the truth. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And he says this, yes, there is one God, he says, and there is, there is no other but he. He's getting excited now. And he says, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself. Yes, it is, it is, and he says, more than all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices, that is the issue. And Jesus turns to him, excited back, and says, you, my friend, are not far from the kingdom of God. You have ears to hear and your heart is open. I tell you, the king, by the, what he means by the kingdom of God is the king is in your presence and you're close to seeing it. You're right there. Follow that. It will lead you like a lighthouse on the shore to me. Come on. So how do we, how do we process this out? Let me just kind of summarize it this way. The number one thing that you and I, and the Ten Commandments teach us this, the number one, th and Jesus made it clear, the number one thing that we can do to be a success in this life, and may we remember this, 
when all of our tokens are laid aside and every degree we earn and every point of notoriety and every accomplishment and every possession is left behind. That one thing, one thing alone truly matters. We are, according to Jesus, not mere freaks of nature with no apparent purpose or meaning. We are divinely imprinted by God with a purpose and that we have been given a privilege to know him and to love him. And the greatest thing we can ever do in this life, we need to remind ourselves of this. If we sit with Jesus, we will remember this, that the greatest thing we can ever seek to do in this life is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God. It is the greatest thing we can ever do. Number one, every good disconnected from this truth is a disconnected good. Did you hear me? It's a disconnected good. It may be good, but it's a disconnected one because it does not flow from the connectedness to the one who Jesus said is truly good, God himself. But secondly, and this cannot be missed as well, is that to love God, as meaningful as it may be, must also be accompanied by, intertwined with, a love, a definitive love for other people. That to say that we love God and to disconnect that, from the everydayness of our life where we are compelled to work our faith out in very real and difficult and challenging ways where we are confronted with personality conflicts, real pain and real, and, real, and real issues of hurt, that it is in that very place where Jesus intended for us to live out our faith and to grow, that it was not meant to simply be, and I don't demean this, a, a, an understanding of concepts, of, again, not read like a lawyer, Pardon to all the lawyers out there. But not read as one uninvested, but read as an heir. Read, you know, basically lived out as one who's part of an, over, an overriding story that God is doing on this earth. And we're a part of that. And we've been called to be a people of blessing. And it's not enough to just say, I love God and I believe the right things, but then I don't like people. It's not good enough. It won't cut it. Some of us say, well, I like people, but it's just the ones that I'm really close to that I have a hard time with. And that's, listen, some, some of us have an easier time loving people across the continents than we do people in our own homes. And others of us, it might be the opposite. But I'm going to tell you something. Our faith is going to be challenged because it's, it's meant to be, to be, it's going to force us to see. We, if we say we love God, but we are allowing our heart to be mean and unthoughtful and we lack compassion and we are not, not concerned about kindness being a byproduct of our lives, and we're not letting God um, convict our heart when we speak out things that are not what he would have us to speak, to, to you know, I, I was uh, yesterday at my, my son's game, I was so involved in it, Besides almost losing my voice, which I realized was going to be a problem since I was preaching this weekend, I remember saying something that I felt like the Lord convicted me on afterwards. Now, I don't swear. I really don't. I don't. That's not part of my life. But I could say my own version of swearing. And I remember... <laughs> I, I remember saying something in my passion. And I regretted it afterwards. And, you know, I knew in my own heart that I had not, that I, had, I did not model the way of Christ in that, you know. And there are times where we will be reminded that it's one thing to believe the right things, 
But the Lord wants us to love people and to be long-suffering and to forgive and to guard our words and to seek to be a blessing, to let our light so shine before men that they may see your good works in heaven and glorify your Father above. That the goodness of life would compel people to be open to the Lord in a way that they would have never been if they had not been in contact with us. That's a big deal. Last thing I'll say, the Ten Commandments remind us that we have a God who longs to draw us to him. I want to put you on eagle's wings and bring you to myself. What can separate us from the love of God? Is there anything we can ever do? I was reminded of Jesus when he was with Peter on the other side of Peter's failure, on the other side of the resurrection on the sea of, by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter was saying, Lord, you know, I got nothing to offer you. I'm no good, basically. Find somebody else, not me. I'm a man of contradictions. And I, I'll let you down every time when it's on the line. Jesus said, do you love me, Simon Peter? It's a question he asked, by the way, to every one of us. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. No matter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Third time he asked, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know. The Lord says, feed my sheep. Do you see what the connection? Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do. He says, then bless the people I've given to you feed my sheep. It's people. It's if you love me, be the blessing I want you to be in this life to others. That is, he's, think about it. He is connecting loving me and loving others. Accept the weight. Accept the weight. Be the example. Do it. Live in my grace, my friend. Not as a perfect man. You're a broken man. That's okay. I like broken people, Jesus says. The proud I despise. The humble of heart. There is room. Sometimes our failure is a gift because it breaks us of our pride. And when our pride is broken, God can do stuff in our lives. One of those things is teaching us how to love people better and to be more forgiving and, 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 and more merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for when we need it, we will obtain it ourselves. Lord, I pray that as we uh, sit with these these truths, these principles, as we consider what it means to serve you and love you and to live for you, as we close this service out in a moment with our, our offering time and, and our giving time and, and this song, Lord, that we're going to end with, I just, I just pray that you would take these things that we're sitting with and, and allow them to penetrate into our own heart, Lord. And I pray that you would remind us that we have been given a privilege to know you, that we are heirs to a will, not to be lawyers. Lord, there's a difference. Give us a heart that's open, that's looking in your scriptures for the very life that's for us. Teach us about relationship and what it means to grow. Give us the gift of a vibrancy that is stronger even than our failure. Remind us, Lord, that even when we're at our worst, you love us and call us back home. That even the prodigal in his rags was not too dirty for the father who ran and kissed him and loved him and hugged him. And, Lord, that's like us. You find us stuck in the thicket, the good shepherd you are, whose love is stronger than death. And I just pray that you keep working in our lives and remind us again of how much we are loved and help us to love others in a way, in some small way, the way that you love us. And we just ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>